You are listening to A Hope in Christ with First Baptist Church of Opelousas, Louisiana. We are a biblically driven, diverse, evangelistic family of believers seeking to glorify God by calling Acadiana to a saving faith and the hope found only in Jesus Christ. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast on most major podcast providers or check us out on the web at www.fbcopelousas.org. And now, A Hope in Christ. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. So I have to say, I've looked forward to this morning for quite some time because starting today, we are embarking on a verse-by-verse expositional study of the Gospel of Luke. Now, we call it the Gospel of Luke, but, but when we say gospel in this context, we mean something a little different than we use the word gospel to refer to the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. The gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ is the good news, the, the euangelion in the original language. It's something that we announce, that we proclaim. It's the central truth of salvation by God through the gift of his grace and through our response in faith to Jesus Christ, in which we acknowledge that God is our maker, sin is our failure, and that Jesus Christ is our savior, that faith is the answer, and and that now with new life, communion with God is our pleasure. That God has created us, he's he's made us for himself and our hearts are restless unless they find their rest in him. And even though we know this is true, yet we rebelled against him. We have chosen to worship other gods or, or we have chosen to worship ourselves instead of him. And the Bible tells us that the wages of that sin is death. And yet God in his great love has not left us under the condemnation of our sins. That he sent his son, his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world not only to live a perfect life, but to bear the due penalty of sin for all who trust in him. So that when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, when we believe upon him as he is offered in the gospel, that we are pardoned and we are forgiven. That we are adopted into his family and that we are a new creation living a new life that we no longer live for ourselves, but now we live for him. That we no longer live in this perpetual endeavor and ambition to please ourselves and to attain earthly and worldly satisfaction, but we find the fullness of our joy and the abundance of our joy in God and God alone. Through Jesus Christ, when we die to self, we live for him. And that gospel message That essential truth is the core proclamation of the preaching and the teaching in the New Testament. But but in this context, when we refer to the gospel, we're not just talking about the message. We're talking about the four books that give you the context for appreciating and understanding that message. We're talking about the four books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell us the story of the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ, which are all essential elements of the gospel message. They explain the meaning of the life of Christ. 
what it meant to you and I, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and they explained the significance of who he is, of, of the work he accomplished in order that you and I would understand the gospel message. So, so let's define it on down. Let's bring it in and talk about the one that we're starting to study. Now, if you'll notice in the book of Acts, and we'll get into this later, but we think Acts and the gospel of Luke are actually one long letter, both written by Luke, split in the canon of New Testament. But, but one of the things you'll notice if you ever study the book of Acts is that every gospel presentation, except for one, begins with the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus Christ. They start by telling you this is who God said he was from the very beginning. And that is also exactly the way that the gospel of Luke begins. The gospel of Luke doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus. It begins actually before the birth of Jesus. And it doesn't just begin even with the, the birth of John the Baptist. Yet it points us back to the Old Testament and to the prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah, which were perfectly accomplished and completely feel, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so the, old, the Gospel of Luke begins with the Old Testament. It begins with the prophecies that God has made long ago. That, that, that's one way that God tells us that he's not just at that point of time beginning to work on people's salvation. But he has been working for our salvation not only from before the foundation of the earth was laid, but throughout the history of his chosen people in the Old Testament. And those things are connected in the Gospel of Luke. And you're going to see that clearly as we walk through the first two chapters. You'll see it today as we look at the first seven verses. Now, now if you look at the first four verses of Luke, you're going to see that's his introduction. For those of you that like to read, that's the prologue to the book. And then it begins, he begins to tell the story of an obscure priest and his wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, and we're just going to get the first little snippet of their story as we study our passage today. But I want to give you four things quickly to be on the lookout for as we're reading. First of all, when we get to verse 1, I'd like you to be asking yourself some questions about this passage. And in verse 1, I want you to ask yourself, what does verse 1 tell me about God's plan in the story that's unfolding in Luke chapter 1? What does verse 1 tell me about the accomplishments of God's plan? Second, when you and I make it to verse 4, I want you to ask yourself, what does this verse tell me about the importance of truth to the Christian faith and life? So what does this tell me about the truth? how essential it is to Christianity. When we get to verse 5 this morning, I want you to ask yourself, doesn't verse 5 point to an irony in God's providence that we don't just see in Luke, but we see from Genesis to Revelation? There's an irony there I think you're going to see clearly in verse 5. I'll draw your attention more to it when we get there. And then in verses 6 and 7, as we close out today, as the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth is unfolding, I want you to look at this. Look for the trials and particularly the great trial in their life and ask the question, what does the trial of Zechariah and Elizabeth teach me about how I am to respond to God's providence when I'm in these trials myself? So, as we're reading, be on the lookout for these four things. So let's go ahead, let's dig into the passage. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. 
As we begin with Luke chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything clearly from the beginning, to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus so that you may have the certainty about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijan, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God. Now remember, we've talked about this before. One of the rarest compliments given in Scripture is when the Holy Word of God calls someone righteous. That is a big deal to be called righteous in the word of God. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. If you would go with me to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we look at your holy word this morning, Father, as we look at this plan for salvation, for the redemption of man, God, that was put in place before the world was even created, Father, you sovereignly chose to place your love upon us and, and not because of our worthiness. God, none are. You placed your love upon the rebel, upon the one who would spend their life running from you trying to throw off your authority, God, that you would place your love upon them. Father, as we look at the story of this gospel, the story of Christ, the story about Christ, the story of your glory, God, I pray that you would forgive my inadequacies. Lord, I pray that you would remove the guilt of my sin before you. Allow me to speak on your behalf. God, I pray that you wouldn't allow anything to pass through my lips that doesn't give you your due glory because, Lord, you are worthy above all. I pray for those in the audience this morning. Lord, that all the stresses, all the things of this day, that it would be removed for the next few moments, that they would focus solely upon you. As this gospel unfolds, that they would come to an even greater appreciation of the grace, the mercy, and the love that's been extended. Father, for that one who is still outside of the family of God, I pray that this morning, maybe for the first time, they feel that, that they feel that repentance, that brokenness over their sin, and that it would draw them to the cross. Be with us now. We praise you and we honor you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may be seated. So I'm going to be honest with you. As a pastor... Kind of my heart, it's, it's one of my dreams for our congregation, one of my prayers for our congregation, that we would increasingly, over time, become a gospel-saturated and a gospel-centered congregation. That's a, a congregation that is saturated by the knowledge of the truth of the gospel, and it compels us in our life and in our ministries by that we're compelled by the power of the gospel, that we're motivated to live and serve by the gospel, that we're preoccupied with sharing the gospel and living it out not only for our benefit, but for those around us to see. 
And I mean, what better way to learn how to be gospel preoccupied and gospel centered than to study through the gospels or, or to take a gospel like the gospel of Luke and let it inform our life and our ministry together. And my hope and my prayer for you is this. I hope over the course of our time working together through this amazing gospel, through this magnificent book, that we would become so gospel saturated and centered we would become so gospel preoccupied and proclaiming as a congregation that it would affect not only the lives in here, but the lives of St. Landry Parish as a whole. That you would take the truths you're going to learn through the gospel of Luke, that you would share them with your families, with your co-workers, with your community. Listen, God has placed us in an area that desperately needs the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you've heard me say this before, as much as Pastor Chad and I would love to reach the masses, you collectively will witness and be around more people than he and I ever will. So it's vital, it's incredibly vital that we have an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own lives, not just for our own growth and edification, not even for the growth and edification of the body, but so that we are prepared to be the vessel of mercy into Opelousas, into St. Landry Parish. I mean, we look at the news, we look at the darkness all around us. How effective could a gospel-driven church be in bringing about the change that Opelousas needs, that St. Landry Parish needs, that Sunset and Karen Crow and Lafayette? It starts right here. It starts with you taking the truth that you are learning about the glory and the majesty and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ and sharing it with those you come into contact with. I believe it would have a profound impact upon us. And that's why I'm so excited about embarking on this journey, this study through the gospel of Luke. And so as we do so this morning, there's so much that we could say, but, but I want to hone in on those four things we talked about. And the first thing I want you to see, I want to draw your attention to is this. It's that Luke makes it clear in this passage that the story of God's redemption through Jesus Christ begins with a focus on what God is accomplishing among us. You see this clearly in verse 1. Look back at verse 1. Luke says to Theophilus, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account, what's he talking about here? An account of what? Of the things that have been fulfilled. Your translation may say accomplished, but the things that have been fulfilled are accomplished among us. And then he begins to, to catalog in the next two chapters the things that have been fulfilled among us. And, and you'll see that all of it, not some of it, but all of these things were started and initiated and completed ultimately by God himself. Understand, the Gospels are not a record of the accomplishments of man. It doesn't say, look at what we have done. It says, look at how helpless we are. Look at how radically dependent we were for God to do what you and I could not do. It is a record just like all of the New Testament, just like all of the canon of Scripture as a whole of the perfect accomplishments of God. And you're going to see that clearly. Second, you'll see it's a fulfillment. It's a record of what God had prophesied he would do in the Old Testament coming to pass in the very time of Luke and his contemporaries. And so, so Luke is drawing our attention when he says Theophilus. Now, 
I want you to, to tell you what's happening in our midst. I'm compiling a record. I want you to know, Theophilus, of the things that have been seen, the things that I have heard firsthand from firsthand witnesses. He's not just saying, Theophilus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a report of yesterday's news. He's not saying, I'm going to make a catalog of some stuff that's happened in general. He's saying, I want to tell you specifically of what God is doing in fulfillment of his prophecies and promises from the Old Testament. And listen, it's so important to get this that we understand and appreciate what he's saying here, that the gospel begins with a focus on what God has accomplished in accordance with his perfect word to fulfill what he had promised beforehand and, and prophesied what was going to happen in the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And now Luke's in his own time, he's saying that all of these accomplishments have been fulfilled, these promises, these prophecies, and the gospel begins there. Now, you may be asking yourself, why is that so important for us today to understand that it's all about God? And the truth is this, because even in evangelical churches, so often the content of the preached word or of the messages that are given is not focused on God. It's not focused on his glory, the gospel, Jesus Christ. It's focused on something else entirely. The truth is this. Very often what charades is a message in Christian churches is the encouragement that God is here to help you reach your full potential. You hear sermon series, four ways to be a better you, five ways to have a better marriage, 10 ways to be fulfilled in whatever your job is. It's all about us. Listen, all too often, the term we use is you get a spiritual TED talk. And if the best the preacher has to offer you is to tell you how to make your ride along in this life a little more comfortable for you, then you should run from that church because that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what Luke is telling you and I this morning, that it is all about God. That all these things, the better you, the better life, the better marriage, the better vocation, all of those are a byproduct of the sanctification of God working in your heart, growing you as a Christian, and that only comes by being focused on him, by keeping your eyes upon the prize. And when you lose that, you lose the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand, God is not the best means for you to reach your end. He is the soul and he is the chief end of man. And we live for his glory as we discussed last week. Creation is for his glory, redemption for his glory, sanctification all for his glory. And this is what Luke is showing us right out of the gate in this fabulous gospel that it is all about him. Listen, when we make it about us, we turn the entirety of scripture upside down. And so what Luke is doing right off the bat is he's putting it right side up and he's pointing to what God is doing. I love what Theologian J.I. Packer says that the secret to a soul-enriching Bible study is to ask first, what does this passage teach me about God? Not about me. What does it teach me about his perfection, about his holiness, his transcendence, his justice, his mercy, his grace? And then only secondly, the question we ask is, how then does this inform how I should live? Remember, the first question is always 
in the study of God's word, what does this teach me about my Lord? And so the first message is what God has done for us, what we couldn't do. That's what Paul or what Luke's teaching us right off the bat. We see it in Luke as he draws our attention to what God is accomplishing among us as a fulfillment of all he had promised to do in the Old Testament. And it's vital for us to listen to the word of God and ask ourselves, is the focus here on God? Is the focus here on the gospel? Is the focus here on his son? Or is it on something else? And I say one more time, if you're in a church or if you're even here and you hear me on stage or, or Pastor Chad on stage and we take the focus off of God and his due glory, I expect you as my family in Christ to come to me and say, whoa, brother, no, that, that's not right. It's all about him. Amen. It's about his gospel, his glory, his grace, his son. If it's anything else, you can be assured that that message did not emanate from his scripture. It come from somewhere else. And so immediately in the prologue of this letter, Luke is putting things into perspective for us by pointing to God's accomplishments among us, that it's all about him and it's all by him, that this is his story. This is his plan. This is his purposes being accomplished. And Luke is drawing our attention to that. And so that's the first thing we learned from this today, that the Christian gospel begins with God's accomplishments on our behalf. So the second thing that I want you to see, especially in verse four, that before Luke gets to his, his once upon a time, he'll get to that in verse five. But before he gets there, he tells Theophilus, and by the way, if you don't know this, we're not sure if Theophilus was the exact person he was writing to. It was often used as a term of endearment among brothers back then because it literally means friend of God. So he could have been writing to someone named Theophilus. It could have been a term of endearment for a young Christian, a brother in Christ, maybe ultimately a whole group of young Christians that are growing in Christ. But Regardless whoever the audience is, Luke is telling them why he's writing the book. Look again in verse 4. He says, I'm writing this so that you may know the certainty about the things you have been taught. So in other words, Luke believes that it is absolutely imperative and essential that we understand the truth upon which Christianity is founded. That we understand the basis of the gospel message is truth. That it's centered upon the person and work of Jesus Christ because Christianity is a historical religion. It claims that God has intersected and interjected into human history and therefore there is truth, there are facts, there are actual events, there is concrete evidence of the things that have happened that form the basis of what God is doing in the fulfillment of his plan of salvation. And so as we, we work through Luke's gospel, it's not just a story, it's a true story. It's a recitation of historical facts. Never forget that, that, that there are events and facts and truths that are essential to the gospel that he's proclaiming. And so he says to Theophilus, to all his readers, I want you to be certain about the basis of the message that you've heard proclaimed to you, that you've seen written to you. He's saying, so I'm, I'm going to write down the eyewitness accounts based on the proclamation of the apostles. <clears throat> 
excuse me, themselves. He's taking it firsthand from the very men who walked side by side with Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. This isn't some long after letter that he's heard from descendants of the apostles. He's saying, I got this straight from the horse's mouth. The men who were there, who saw him heal, who saw him deliver the demon oppressed, who saw him raise the dead to life, who saw him in his glorious form on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, I heard it directly from them. Those who saw him nailed to the cross, those who were with him in his agony at Gethsemane, those who saw him after he was resurrected from the dead, those who witnessed his ascension back into the heavens to his throne at the right hand of the Father. And Luke is saying, I heard it directly from these men. I want you to notice the language he uses in verse 2. Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses. So they did what? They saw it themselves. They heard it. They felt it. They saw it. They were there. These servants of the word, he says, that handed them down to us. So he says they saw the events and then what did they do? They spoke about them. They proclaimed them. They preached about the things they had personally experienced, the things they had witnessed, the teachings they had heard. And Luke says, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account. So remember this process. They saw it. They spoke about it. Luke writes down the eyewitness accounts of what's happened. Now, what's that all about? It's about Luke saying, I'm telling you something, Theophilus, that people alive now saw with their own eyes, that proclaim with their own mouths, walking the earth. As I'm writing this, they saw it. They told me about it. I've written it down so you can know. And likewise, those of us here today can know that these are historical events that actually took place, that they were proclaimed from the mouth of the eyewitnesses. That you and I today could be certain that the perfect word of God for the generations to come has been preserved for all time. He says, I'm writing it down. And he's doing this because understand, truth matters. And that's something that's ultimately lost on the generations of today. Our generation doesn't like truth especially absolute truth. What's true to you may not be true to me, may not be true to her, true to him. And the only sin is to come along and say, no, there are absolute truths in life. There are non-negotiables. It's either true or it's not. There's no gray areas. There's no murky waters. There is absolute truth. And I want you to understand, those that deny it, are seductive in the way they do it because they're not wanting to deny truth. They're just wanting to substitute their own for yours. And so Luke is saying from the very beginning that we claim what we have seen, what we have heard, that it is absolute truth that your life can depend on it, that your eternity can depend on it. You know, I saw or read an interview recently from an actor, Will Smith, from some years ago. And in this interview, the interviewer said, now, Will, it's rumored that you were involved or enamored with Scientology. But he said, Will, you grew up a Baptist. How do you reconcile these things? And I want to read you verbatim Will Smith's response. He said, well, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood where there were Muslims and Christians and Jews and Hindus and atheists and others. and, And I believe that any way someone approaches God, if it works for them, that's wonderful. 
I think that everyone has truth. We all call the same God by different names. And, and anyway, my grandmother taught me ultimately it was about being a good person. It was about doing good things, close quote. Now, now that is a fascinating answer. And, and rarely in one answer to a question have I seen so much confusion packed into so few words. But here's the point. Had Will Smith said this to Luke, look, I, I don't want to get all hung up in the truths and the doctrines and the claims about who Jesus is and, and what he is. I just want to be a good person and do good things. Luke would have said, fine, that's your right. But understand, Christianity is founded upon truth. And to deny that truth is to deny Jesus Christ himself. And to deny Jesus Christ himself is to be a reprobate headed for eternal damnation. We aren't just a people interested in doing good things. That is a byproduct of us absorbing the truth into our hearts. Of that truth bringing a dead soul to life. You know, we're interested in good things. And then people come along and say, you know, it, it doesn't matter what you believe. What matters is that you do these good things. Let me tell you, when they tell you that, what they're really after, they're just simply interested in redefining what you believe is truth. I promise, if you set down what you say is truth, what they say is truth, it is not going to match up. Even the atheist, even the secularist has their own version of religion, and they're just trying to make you a convert into theirs. And secondly, even though they deny it, that's exactly what they're doing. They're seeking to draw you in. They're sharing their world gospel with you, wanting to make you an eager convert. They're wanting to drag you away from the cross. They're wanting to take you to hell as they go with them. The change in the truth. Listen, everybody no matter whether they claim it or not, everyone has their non-negotiables. And the minute they tell you they don't, they're just trying to slide it in under the door. And so the Luke is saying here that you need to understand that Christianity is founded upon the truth. It's founded upon people who saw it, who witnessed it, who heard it, who were a part of it. He's saying as Christians, we believe these things and these things are essential to the doing that Christians do. They are the motivation. They are what compels us into the world because we know that our Lord Jesus Christ right now is at the right hand of the Father, that one day he will return, that the sky will split open, that he will reign victorious, that he will take those who have believed in him back to heaven, and that we will glorify him and enjoy him for all eternity. We know that's true. We know that's a certainty. We do the things we do because of the truth we believe. There is an unbreakable, inherent connection between the truth and the faith and the practice. They flow together. You cannot separate them. And if you break that chain between any of those, then your faith falls apart and you are outside of the camp. So Luke is telling us that the Christian faith is founded upon truth. And, and it's important for us to know these things and, and to believe these things and to understand that these things are based upon historical events that really happen. This is not some fairy tale. This is the truth. Third, we're going to get to the irony that I talked about earlier in verse 5. Look at verse 5 again. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Now, now let's go back to if we were living then. 
I don't know what the newspaper of the day was. Maybe it was the Jerusalem Post. But if you were going to pick up the Sunday edition of the Jerusalem Post, no doubt you would not have saw a front page story about Zechariah. I mean, Zechariah was just a lowly priest. There was nothing major about him, but you probably would have read a lot about Herod. Think about our political leaders of today in the United States who are at the top of the news headlines every day and truthfully most of the time, not for the best reasons. But Herod was just like that. You would have heard a lot about him in the talk of the day, the news of the day. He would have been the headline story because of his position, because of his notoriety. I mean, think about the irony. You have this king, this king who ruled over all of Judea, mentioned in the same sentence with this lowly priest and his wife, this unknown priest, Zechariah. Yet it was Zechariah and Elizabeth who were the chosen instruments of God who ultimately would have an eternal impact. And I want you to understand, that's not unique. This is always the way it is, my friends, in God's economy. The world looks at faithful believers and says they're not important, that the really important events and people of the day are in Washington, they're in Moscow, they're in London, they're in Beijing. And I say, no, no. The important eternal impacts of this generation are taking place in the lives of yielded believers who willingly become the instruments of our Lord Jesus Christ for the propagation of the gospel, for the building of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ones the world thinks are obscure, are unimportant, and they may think that, and that's absolutely fine. But in God's economy, the kings and the world leaders are pawns, and his people are the instruments. My friends, there is nothing that we do for Christ for the gospel of Jesus Christ that's wasted in God's economy. Now, you may be saying right now, but Brother Joe, you don't understand. I'm not a gifted speaker. I'm not a gifted teacher. I'm, I'm not thought of highly in society. I don't have social status. I don't have a ton of money in my account. I don't have a job that lets me influence people. And my answer to you is that's wonderful. That means you're exactly the person that God will use. It is always the one who seems unqualified. Look no further than your pastor. There are men who are so much more eloquent, so much more intelligent, so much more gifted than I am. And yet God uses the weak. God uses those who are unable on their own because when he does, when his kingdom purposes are brought out through those men and through those women, there is no doubt who not only deserves the glory, but who gets the glory, it's God. Listen to me. I don't care where you are in life. I don't care how important you think you are. Nothing you do for the kingdom of God is wasted. Whether the world acclaims it or not, it doesn't matter because your Father in heaven sees it. And it has eternal purpose. Nothing we do for the kingdom is wasted. You know, it's an intriguing story, isn't it? Nobody in that society would have paid attention to old Zachariah and Elizabeth and they're the very ones that initiate, we say, uh, initially in the gospel of Luke. And this king, this mighty man of the world, Herod, just a pawn in the hand of God to be used. So one last thing this morning. Not only do we see that the Christian gospel begins with the, God's accomplishments, 
that the faith is founded upon the truth, that the Christian story reveals this intriguing irony in God's providence where he uses the weak to confound the strong, the obscure to confound the famous, and to advance his purposes. But one thing I don't want you to miss today is absolutely the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Look at the way they're described in verse 6. Remember what I said earlier. They're described as righteous before God. They walk blamelessly in the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. And let me tell you, as someone who studies the Word of God every day, that is the rarest and highest compliment given in Scripture. To be called righteous in the Word of God is the highest order of compliment. And Luke's telling his Jewish readers, look, these were godly saints. This was a man and woman who loved the law of Moses. They lived according to the Hebrew Bible. They walked with integrity. These were, for our terms, salt of the earth believers. And he's saying to the readers, to the original audience in verse 7, that even though all that was true, that they were barren that they were without a child. And and understand, that is resounding. They loved the Lord. They walked in his ways. They served in his kingdom. They gave all they had from the inside out for him. And yet they were going through the most grievous of trials for that time period. Listen, it's hard for us to even understand today, to begin to understand the trial of childlessness for a Hebrew, Hebrew believer in those days. I mean, it's almost impossible for us to understand what a big deal this was, as grievous as it is today. And there may be families in the room right now who are trying to have a child and you have it. We pray for you. And as hard as that is today, it is difficult for us to get our head around what a big deal that was back then. It was often seen as you were under the punishment of God. Under the judgment of God, you were talked about, you were gossiped about what sin had you committed that had caused this. And yet here we see Zechariah and Elizabeth, two people getting the rarest compliment that they were righteous, and yet this is the battle they faced. But I want you to think back from the 10,000 foot view. It wasn't just them. I mean, we see over and over in Scripture, time and time again, believers in God, those faithful fight this same battle. Think about Abraham. What was his particular trial? He didn't have a son. Abraham longs for a son. And and when God says to Abraham, I'm your shield and your reward, I'm your inheritance, Abraham's response is, Lord, what does it matter if I don't have a son to give it to? Think about Hannah's cry. Her cry from her soul when she begs for a child in 1 Samuel or Manoah in the book of Judges and his wife praying that God would give them a son over and over and over again in the Bible. Remarkable stories of God's purposes in the overall plan of redemption beginning with couples battling this, going through this trial of childlessness. And you see often they're in the advanced years before God gives them a even a child, but, but it leads to the question, why? Well, I think there's two big reasons here to teach us two things. And the first is this, that God's power is perfected in our weakness. 
that his glory is displayed in our weakness. Whether you think about Abraham's story, whether you think about Manoah's story, whether you think about Zechariah and Elizabeth's story, these were all people well advanced in their years, well past that childbearing age. So when they had a child, people knew that this was the hand of God touching them. People got to see the faith of Abraham, the faith of Manoah, the faith of Hannah, the faith of Zechariah and Elizabeth, even through these trials, even as the world was turning on them, gossiping about them, mocking them, they continued in their righteousness. They continued in their faith and they saw it rewarded. The other thing that I think it teaches us, and this is the harder lesson sometimes, is that God had one son without sin. But he has had no sons or daughters without sorrow. That just because we're Christians, just because we believe God, that it doesn't mean we're not going to walk through seasons of pain in life, seasons of grief. So trials teach us that God's power is perfected in our weakness. I mean, what better way to show that that this is a story that God himself is going to accomplish than to point to two human beings who are are not only uh, going to have a a generation or a son at that point to pass it to, but ultimately are past the age of childbearing till the Lord intervenes. People see that they were radically dependent upon the work of God just like as we are today. Our weakness alone will not accomplish the things that we see God do, but his strength, his power is perfected in our weaknesses. We learn that wonderful, God-fearing, Bible-believing, gospel-treasuring, Christ-exalting Christians can endure great and grievous trials. You know, you hear me and Pastor Chad talk about the prosperity gospel, and and you may have heard preachers say this, that if you just have enough faith, you'll be cured. If you just have enough faith, it'll be okay. And that is so unbelievably evil and unbiblical to say that if you don't have, or if you'll just have enough faith, you won't suffer. Every saint in scripture suffered. The words Jesus told us directly, you will suffer and understand we're warned as a grace. It should not come as a shock to a believer when we go through trials in life because scripture tells us over and over and over again that it is part and parcel with living in a fallen world. He doesn't just say it's a chance. He says it's a certainty. But the peace for you and I this morning is that when we're too weak, When we're going through that hardship in life and and we don't feel like we have the strength to take another step, to face another day, he comes along and he says, that's okay because my power is enough for you. My grace and my mercy is enough for you. We would hope that our trials, that our grief, that it would be taken from us. But the truth is more often than not, we don't get to see that this side of glory. While yes, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they got to see their heart's prayer fulfilled. But I think on the other hand of someone like Paul, over and over again, Paul prayed that this thorn in the flesh would be removed from him. And yet God refused because he reminded Paul over and over and over again that my strength is enough. That my grace and my mercy are enough. You know, we talked about this, I think, Sunday night. 
Even though in the moments I couldn't see them, I look back over some of the greatest sorrows of my life. And through the clarity of time, they say hindsight's twenty twenty. Through that clarity, I can so clearly see now how the mercy and the grace of God enveloped me. And even though in the moment I didn't feel it, it wasn't that God wasn't there. It was that I had blinders on. I couldn't see it. And now I can look back and say, thank you, God. And the only reason I made it through that was because of your grace and your mercy that it was truly perfected in my weakness. Listen, his answer to the grief you're facing His answer to the stress you're facing may not be that I'm going to remove it from you. His answer to you this morning may be that my grace is all sufficient. That when you're too weak, I'll be the power you can depend on. He comforts us. He's gave us his son who took upon himself the trials, the judgment, the burden, the penalty of our sin of all who would believe so that one day we will, he will take us to a place where there is no longer trials, where there's no longer suffering, where the tears will be wiped away. And it's in this great gospel, in this amazing book that God begins to teach us that truth. So I hope you're excited as the musicians come forward. My question to you this morning is we move into a time of response. You've heard me stand up here and talk about the truth of the gospel. You've heard me stand up here and and talk about how the world denies that truth. The world does all it can to try and disprove that truth. Many of you face that on a day-to-day basis. But I'm going to ask you this. Has it become true for you? Has the gospel that we've talked about the euangelion, the good message that you were a reprobate, that you were an enemy of God and where judgment and justice and wrath were called for. Instead, he offers you mercy and he offers you grace because his son, Jesus Christ, climbed the hill of Golgotha. He was nailed to a cross by his very creation and he took the full bore wrath of God the Father for the sin of all who would believe. Has that become a reality in your life? Listen, you've heard me say this. The question is not, will you meet God one day? That is a certainty. You can count on it. The only question for you this morning is, will you meet him as Father and Lord, or will you meet him as judge, jury, and executioner? This morning, he offers you mercy. He offers you grace, accept that precious gift. Whatever your need this morning, if you'd like someone to pray with you, I'll be down front. Go with me to the Lord in prayer. Thank you for listening to A Hope in Christ with First Baptist Church of Opelousas. To hear more, subscribe to this podcast on most major podcast providers or check us out on the web at www.fbcopelousas.org. First Baptist Church of Opelousas, one faith, one hope, one family.